Hello, and welcome again to another podcast of the Conservative Historian. This one entitled, The 1619 Project and the Minting of Money. The date is May 2020. 1492 is the date upon which Christopher Columbus first brought European civilization, and everything that entailed, to South and North America. 1513 was the first date a European set foot on what would become the United States. St. Augustine, founded about 40 years later, became the first European settlement in what would become the United States. In 1607, the first British colony was founded, named Jamestown, in what the British called Virginia. And in 1621, the colony on Plymouth Rock was founded. Then two critical dates In 1776, the British colonies declared their independence from Great Britain, and in 1787, the U.S. Constitution was signed and became the framework for governance that exists until the present day. In October of 2019, the New York Times launched the 1619 Project. This is the date upon which the first slave was brought to what was going to become the United States, though actually it wasn't. In what is endemic about the project, the history itself is a little slipshod. In actuality, it was the first time an indentured servant was brought to Virginia. Slaves would actually come later. In the early 1600s was not even the first time that slavery was practiced or brought to the Western Hemisphere. In 1428, some 60 years prior to the arrival of Columbus, a coalition led by the Aztec Empire crushed the city of Azcapotzalco, establishing hegemony over much of Mesoamerica. The Aztecs were a slaveholding society, using slaves for everything from building projects to ritualized sacrifices. Nor, of course, was slavery something new in the history of mankind, unfortunately. There are inscriptions of Sumerian kings dating back to the 25th century BCE discussing treatment and laws that apply to slaves. Racism was also not new to the Western Hemisphere. The Incan Empire rested on a single tribe of approximately 100,000 centered on the city of Cusco that rose to rule nearly 10 million people. The Incan Empire was not quite the Peruvian Eden dispelled by the snakes of Spain. The empire was a caste system and a far truer example of inequality that ever existed in the fever dreams of a typical American sociology professor. There are many dates that contributed to shaping the nation, but the true founding date, as we shall see, is 1776. And yet, the 1619 Project provides a supposedly better explanation of American history. Quote, Understanding 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are, unquote. This is a statement from Nicole Hannah-Jones, the editor of the project. Hannah-Jones says that, quote, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. Black Americans have fought to make them true, unquote. The word true, or truthfully, comes up a great deal in this project. And yet, Hannah-Jones also states, quote, I think my point was that history is not objective, said Hannah-Jones, and that many people who write history are not simply objective arbiters of facts, and that white scholars are no more objective 
than any other scholars and that they can object to the framing and we can object to their framing as well, unquote. So are we to assume that this means that the totality of her project, in her own words, is not objective? If this is the case, then what is the differentiation of history from a historical novel or even fiction itself? One concept around the 1619 Project is its desire to see a greater inclusion of slavery into the national history. This is important and worthy of study and something that we would completely support. But to say that abolition was a black-only issue is incorrect. Benjamin Franklin wished to abolish slavery at the Constitutional Convention. Washington freed his slaves upon his death. Even Jefferson, with his very sordid history, understood the barbarity of the practice. And from the founding until the firing on Fort Sumter, figures ranging from John Quincy Adams to William Lloyd Garrison to John Brown were all active in fighting slavery and trying to bring about abolition. But one of the premises of the project is misconstrued. Slavery is taught in high schools today and has been for the past 30 years at least. There is a critical difference between a further understanding of slavery as a part of U.S. history and the concept that it is somehow missing from educational curriculums. In an October 2019 essay appearing in Commentary and entitled How the New York Times is Distorting American History, Author Wilfred M. McClay, the current occupant of the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma, states, quote, There is an implication running through much of the 1619 Project that slavery is a subject that somehow is rarely, if ever, spoken of in American history. McClay writes a commentary. He adds, quote, the shelves of American libraries groan with books on the subject by many of the greatest American historians, from Oscar Hanlon and John Hope Franklin to Winthrop Jordan, Edmund Morgan, Eugene Genovese, Lawrence Levine, David Brain Davis, Stanley Ingerman, Gavin Wright, and so on. Unquote. Additionally, whole college curriculums with professors appointed specifically for racial studies are in almost every single university in the country. But the 1619 Project is not just about slavery. Had it been so, it might have been a useful section in companion piece about the challenges of our nation. Rather, the 1619 Project explains, well, well everything. Quote, that the country's defining contradictions first came into the world was in late August of 1619. Out of slavery and the anti-black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, its diet and popular music, the inequalities of its public health system and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day, unquote. 
About the only thing missing is Americans' love of hot dogs and Daniel Steele novels, but given time, I am certain that the editors could find a link. Given this level of scope, it is necessary to first debunk the history behind this effort, then explore, to use Hannah Jones' favorite term, the true goal of the 1619 Project and why it takes its controversial and all-encompassing approach. In regard to the history segment, George Will, in a May 2020 column entitled A Pulitzer Rewarding Slovenliness and Ideological Axe Grinding, Will notes, quote, Because the Times ignored today's most eminent relevant scholars, examples Brown University's Gordon Wood, Princeton's James McPherson and Sean Wilentz, and Alan Gwizel, City University of New York's James Oakes, Columbia's Barbara Fields. The project's hectoring tone and ideological axe grinding are quite unsurprising. Unquote. Hannah Jones is not a historian, but an investigative journalist whose self-stated goal is to, quote, discover and expose the systematic and institutional racism perpetuated by official laws and acts, unquote. The writer on an essay that claims slavery is capitalism, entitled American Capitalism is Brutal, you can trace that to the plantation, is sociologist Matthew Desmond. The writer on the segment linking slavery to a lack of universal health care entitled, Why Doesn't America Have Universal Healthcare? One Word, Race, Janine Interlandy, is a feature writer for leftist magazines, including The New Yorker. The writer of Why American Prisons Own Their Cruelty to Slavery, Brian Stevenson, is an activist lawyer. At least the writer of The Barbaric History of Sugar in America, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, is a professor, albeit not only of history, but also of race and public policy. In fact, aside from Muhammad, the only other history professor is Kevin Cruz of Princeton. It is indicative of the project that Princeton claims two professors who are acknowledged experts on these subjects, but the 1619 Project would select a third Princetonian professor who is not. Historical knowledge or insight was not the goal of this project, Looking at the careers and published works of the 12 editors of this project is not a who's who of history, but rather a who's who of activists in the social justice movement. This is shown in the various arguments presented. One of the contentions is that the American Revolution was not the overthrow of tyranny, but rather so that Southerners could keep their slaves. After all, in 1775, the British Army offered refuge for runaway slaves. The 1619 Project conveniently leaves out that the battles of Lexington and Concord had already been fought prior to this offer. It would be another 60 years before the British banned the slave trade, and even after Wilbur Wilberforce, they had no qualms about trading with the South up to and during the Civil War. The British made this offer as a wartime contingency. Also not fully explained is why would Boston, located in the free state of Massachusetts, the so-called hotbed of rebellion, 
produced so many leaders of the revolution. Additionally, one of the incidents that was to prove incendiary to the colonists was the 1770 Boston Massacre, in which British soldiers killed five Bostonians, and a black man, Crispus Attucks, was among the dead. This also does not include the various taxation schemes, such as the Stamp Act, that was to prove so onerous to northern colonists, such as John Adams, Samuel Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. All of this occurred before 1775. To the British, the signing of the Declaration of Independence was a traitorous act, and had the British captured figures such as John Adams, they would believe they would have had the right to hang him. Is it the contention of the 1619 Project to believe that Adams would have put his life, life of his cousins and of his friends, on the principle that Southerners could have retained their slaves? Absent rebellion, Britain would not have forbid the slave trade nor the ownership of slaves. Therefore, if the goal was to retain their slaves, why would Washington, Monroe, Jefferson, and Madison joined the cause of independence? If it was about slavery, these Virginians would have stayed loyal throughout the period. Then there is the article on capitalism and slavery entitled, American Capitalism is Brutal. You can trace that to the plantation. This article features not a historian, but sociologist Matthew Desmond, who has written two books himself and co-written two more books, but none on Southern agriculture. Desmond, using a single plantation as a source, constructs the link of capitalism to slavery by noting, quote, via vertical reporting systems, double entry record keeping and precise quantification, unquote. Those management te techniques became a model for a, quote, union busting capitalism of poverty wages, geek jobs and normalized insecurity, unquote. Slavery's, quote, violence was neither arbitrary nor gratuitous, unquote, but instead, quote, rational and capitalistic, unquote. The use of modern terms such as gig jobs exemplifies a common issue with the academy today, the concept of viewing history through the conventions and prisms of today's societal norms, or at least the norms as defined in faculty lounges. Of Desmond himself, he was listed in 2016 among the Politico 50 as one of the, quote, 50 people across the country who are most influencing the national political debate, unquote. Exactly. Influencing the political debate. Because after all, that is the goal of a historian, right? In regard to the Desmond essay, Alan C. Gelzo, author of over 10 books on the Civil War and prebellum society, states, quote, Southern agriculture before the Civil War was a sloppy, chaotic affair. Acidic soils discouraged intensive cultivation and pushed landowners towards wasteful land usage and constant movement westward to new territory. Much of what looks like capitalist innovation was a use and abandon process of land expansion, only a few levels above hunting and gathering. Even southern railroads were, as John Majewski has shown, built largely with public funding, not private investment, and mostly with a view of moving southern militias to suppress slave revolts.
unquote. Peter Kokanis, an economic historian, the Albert Ray Newsom Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina, director, Global Research Institute, and publisher of 10 books on economics, and another historian not featured in the 1619 Project, wrote a piece in 2000 entitled Tracking the Economic Diversions of North and South. In this essay, Kokanis notes, quote, It is not surprising that the southern colonies were marked by extreme inequality, not merely in land holding income and wealth, but in the political, social, and cultural realms as well. But does not Kokanis' contention fit into Desmond's view of southern inequality? It would be, excepting that Kokanis does not believe that the South was capitalist. Quote, Such economic and social inequality in turn helped to confine, if not to lock, the South into an overly specialized, low-tech, rigid, and inflexible strategy of development predicated on plantation agriculture, relatively unskilled slave labor and exports. This strategy would increasingly take the region out of the American mainstream, unquote, adds Kokanis. As a comparison, the North embraced a different culture that, quote, emerged out of the vigorous and enterprising business communities of the mid-Atlantic area, especially Pennsylvania, New York, and New England. Having faced enormous entrepreneurial challenges, uncertain, constantly changing markets, these communities were more or less inclined to embrace economic change. Unquote. So which description sounds more like capitalism and which sounds more like socialism? The inherent nature of capitalism is choice. The consumer is free to choose the product. The producer is free to choose the product. And labor is free to choose the production of that product. None of which was evident in the prebellum southern economy. Another of Desmond's contention is that rather than the stagnancy described above by Kokanis, southern agricultural production actually grew after 1800, suggesting that the South perpetuated slave labor under the belief that it was an effective profit generator. This was not due to some capitalist system, but rather by new strains of cotton and the use of the cotton gin. As Kokanis states, quote, the production of cotton locked the South further into its inherent inequality. Unquote. Finally, Desmond attempts to paint New Orleans as a financial center to prove his South was capitalist contention. Quote, New Orleans boasted a denser concentration of banking capital than New York City. Unquote. John Steele Gordon, another prominent historian, also left out of the project, states in his book Empire of Wealth, quote, capital poured in from Europe. Much of this new capital was brokered through Wall Street, which cemented its position as the financial center of the country in the 1850s, unquote. Gelso also notes that, quote, New York alone had more banks in 1858, 294 of them, than the entire future Confederacy, which was homed to 208 banks. The entire region's banking capital in 1858 amounted to less than 80% of that held by the New York banks, unquote. 
There is an insinuation in the 1619 Project that Lincoln, and by extension the North itself, were complicit in slavery. This is a gross dereliction on the part of the more than 300,000 mostly white Northerners who fought and died to end slavery. But the Civil War was not won by superior generalship. It was won by superior economics and superior manpower, both a result of the North featuring a market economy as opposed to the stagnant plantation system of the South. Though there was limited industrial activity in the South, the vast majority of industrial manufacturing was in the North. The South had almost 25% of the country's free population, but only 10% of the country's capital in 1860, which belies Desmond's contention that New Orleans was a banking mecca. The North had five times the number of factories of the South and over 10 times the number of factory workers and 90% 90% of the nation's skilled workers were in the North, Northern Valor, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, and the 13th Amendment were a part of freeing the slaves. But in the end, it was capitalism and industrial might that emancipated. Now, let's address the taint on Lincoln. As George Will notes, quote, misdescribing an 1862 White House meeting with African-American leaders, the project falsely says President Lincoln flatly opposed black equality and adamantly favored colonization of emancipated slaves. Actually, Lincoln had already decided on an emancipation proclamation with no imperative of colonization. In Lincoln's last speech, his openness to black enfranchisement infuriated a member of his audience, John Wilkes Booth, unquote. And there is still the calumny about the founding being about slavery. Will eloquently states, quote, the Constitution was written in 1787 for a nation, conscious of its youth. It would grow under a federal government whose constituting document did not acknowledge, quote, property in man, unquote, and instead acknowledged slaves as persons. This gave slavery no national validation. It left slavery solely a creature of state laws and therefore susceptible to the process that in fact occurred, the process of being regionally confined and put on a path to ultimate extinction. Secession was the South's desperate response when it recognized this impending outcome that the Constitution had facilitated, unquote. And what of the merit of the date in and of itself as the founding? Writing for the Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf, in an essay entitled 1776 Honors American's Diversity in a Way 1619 Does Not, states, quote, that substitution centers a story of white oppressors and black victims while overlooking groups as numerous and varied as indigenous Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, and almost everyone whose ancestors got here after the Civil War, not to mention confounding characters like African slave traders and white abolitionists, unquote. 
As much as the perpetuators of the 1619 Project wished to claim the United States a denizen of hate and brutality, the nation was truly founded on an ideal and remains the only nation to ever have been conceived as such. Though slavery was not eliminated in 1776, nor in the year of the Constitution, the seeds for its destruction were wrought at the beginning. There is a conceit on the part of 21st century academics that the leaders of the early republic were blithely unaware of the discrepancy of the right to liberty extolled in the Declaration and the actions on the ground. This is false. A history of the early republic is replete with an ongoing contest between those in the north searching for a way to end slavery without destroying the republic itself. A historian could cite the Northwest Ordinance Laws that barred slavery being imported into the North. In the 1830s, the possible secession of South Carolina showed the fault lines already inherent. The Compromises of 1820 and 1850, one for each generation, culminated in the Civil War in which leaders such as Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens, Republicans, by the way, held sway. All of these looked back to the inalienable rights espoused in 1776. As with so much of history, and even alluded to by Hannah Jones, the gymnastics performed to link the ideology to history says more about the essayists in the 1619 Project than about history itself. Gelsel states, quote, The 1619 Project is not history. It is polemic. Born in the imaginations of those whose primary target is capitalism itself and who hope to tarnish capitalism by associating it with history. Unquote. We would go a step further. We feel that the 1619 Project is targeting all sorts of institutions, not just the concept of capitalism, but everything from prison reform to diet, as is noted by the collection of essays. And for all of this twisting and dissimulation, Hannah Jones won the Pulitzer Prize. But interestingly enough, not for history, she won it for commentary. Now it is easy to chalk up the Pulitzer with its inherent virtue signaling to other prominent left-leaning awards such as the Nobel Peace Prize. The challenge is that in the minds of the target audience of the 1619 Project, such awards matter because its competition is all of the other leftist criteria also being perpetuated. That the New York Times would sponsor this, and in fact be an owner in a venture, might say more about declining ad revenue and catering to their targeted digital subscriber base as much about their belief in the curriculum. Just as with the Green New Deal, the 1619 Project is, in a sense, a smokescreen of its true intentions. It is not a history of slavery or African-American society as such, but rather an ideological menu of leftist desires, including the elimination of capitalism, criminal justice reform, educational curricula, energy policy, and even food stamp programs. This should have been the 2020 project, because that is really the year of which these writers and the New York Times are most interested as McClay states, quote, perhaps they, the essays, are best understood as flights of fancy. It would not be overly cynical to suspect 
that they are better understood as part of the Times' journalistic battlefield preparation for the 2020 election. That interpretation is given fairly incontrovertible support by a revealing leaked transcript of a recent meeting between Times executive editor Dean Bacay and his staff writers, in which it becomes clear that some Times reporters are itching to inject the theme of America's endemic racism into virtually all of the Times reporting as a way of tilting public opinion towards whichever candidate the Democratic Party ends up nominating. And that, the editor, is not the least bit inclined to resist his staff's desires. Unquote. But this is not just about ideological goals, though that is a big part of the project. It is also about influencing students, and it is also about money. A few years ago, during a teacher-parent conference, this author happened upon the textbook sitting on the economic teacher's desk. The editor was Paul Krugman. I was thinking, could it be that Paul Krugman? This is an economist who equates conservative economists to zombies and Sarah Palin rallies to the Oklahoma City bombings. Quote, I've had a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach ever since the final stages of the 2008 campaign. I remembered the upsurge in political hatred after Bill Clinton's election in 1992, an upsurge that culminated in the Oklahoma City bombing. And you could see, just by watching the crowds at the McCain-Palin rallies, that it was ready to begin again. Unquote. Breathlessly, explains Krugman. And of course, no books by Milton Friedman or Martin Feldstein graced the desk of that high school teacher. The 1619 Project is just a more straightforward example of what Krugman was doing. In Krugman's case, it was using economics to perpetuate leftist orthodoxy and make serious money by selling thousands of expensive textbooks to school districts. In the case of the 1619 Project, it is using history to do the same thing. Yet a school district could not use Krugman's book to assuage feelings of white guilt, nor to virtue signal to the rest of big education just how moral they really are. The 1619 Project can accomplish two goals at once, provide a ready-set curricula for their school districts, and prove to the world how these schools are rejecting their privilege and becoming woke, to use the parlance. Milton Friedman once stated that, quote, intellectuals are people with something to sell, unquote. The selling here is the collection of essays to school districts, and therefore the essays themselves are bent, constructed, even fabricated in order to most appeal to those constituencies. As Gelslow notes, quote, the awarding of a Pulitzer Prize for commentary to the New York Times Magazine's Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, will serve as an additional selling point as the Times and the Pulitzer Center, unaffiliated with the prize, seek to market their 1619 Project curriculum. It's hard not to see the prize as an attempt to deflect the criticisms the paper has taken from historians across the country, unquote. The irony here, lost in the perpetuators of this project, is, is that they are practicing capitalism themselves. They have identified a market. They have built a product most geared towards that market. 
and whether this is real history or not is beside the point. A well-balanced, thoroughly researched, objective project would be competing with too many other curricula. By its radicalism, based on shoddy research and innuendo, the project stands out. It has a competitive advantage, just as a capitalist would hope. Yet the difference with most of capitalism is that if the product is shoddy, it will get surpassed by alternatives. But not in the case, because the 1619 Project was explicitly constructed to work on the virtue signaling of the New York Times readership and school administrators. As of the writing of this critique, David French, former National Review editor and current senior editor of the Dispatch, stated, quote, Activists constantly overstate their case because, if they don't, no one will pay attention to them, unquote. To date, prominent writers and historians, ranging from the aforementioned George Will to actual historians such as Sean Willens, have commented on the project. Mission accomplished. Attention received. The concern is not that this project is debunked. That mission is accomplished as well. It is rather that by being the loudest, most ridiculous example of African-American history masquerading as ideology, it will actually work. The winners are twofold. Hannah Jones in the New York Times. The losers are legion. Academics who would have provided better history. Those who like history fooled into thinking that this project contains actual veracity. But foremost include the parents and students of whatever school district buys into this ideology masquerading as history. The conservative historian asks any parents or taxpayers who would pay for this, find out if your district is buying, and then ask some serious questions of the administration and the school board. Thank you.